Great, thank you for that. Just, I want to start a little bit by just explaining what this uh, great name, CH Term Hill, means. So it's a, uh, an American headquartered company with almost 30,000 staff, um, annual revenues of something like $7 billion, works as a um, consulting, design, design, build operations, program management for both private and public sector companies works in water, which is the part of the business I'm in, but also in transportation, energy, environment, facilities, and things like that. Um, what, for those who are in the know, the projects where we've worked on, which are some of our you know, showcase projects, are things like the London Olympics 2012, the, uh, 22, um, the 2022 FIFA World Cup in Qatar, Thames Tideway Tunnel, Lee Tunnel, um, and High Speed 2. So these are some, you know, the biggest infrastructure projects around the world that we work on. We were, um, so CH Hill bought the company Halcrow, which is who I used to work for about two years ago, and Halcrow had some 130 odd years of, of uh, history of delivering um, infrastructure solutions in the UK and, and worldwide. But now I'm part of CH Hill, and I can almost say CH Hill just like that. So the talk <laughs> is about uh, climate change and particularly about decision making in flood risk management. And that's the area that I'm most interested in, because that's what I do a lot of the time. It's trying to help people make decisions to try and improve management of flood risk. Um, what I, want to, I want to use two examples, two example projects that I've been involved in to try to shed some light on that question that's on the screen at the moment. Um, the two example projects are the MECOM project, which is the, the upper graphic on that first screen. Um, where I've worked for many years for the Mekong Rivers Commission, but I'm currently on a project which is about um, trying to embed climate change thinking inside federalist management decision making. And then the bottom picture there is um, from China, from the Taihu Basin, uh, where I was part of a, um, a UK Chinese expert team looking at scenario analysis for, uh, for decision making, I suppose, in federalist management in the Taihu Basin, which includes the, um, the city of Shanghai and some other cities. So I'm going to talk about those two examples and then use that to, um, to go on a bit about that question about is, is climate change science a barrier to actual decision making in flood risk management. So let's start with the Lower Mekong. If I just give a little bit of a context to that. So the Lower Mekong means the Mekong, um, the River Mekong and its catchment below um, China. The uh, big um, triangle you see on the screen there is where the um, Mekong flows in, well, flows out of China. It then goes through the countries of uh, Laopedia, Thailand, Cambodia and Vietnam. Um, there's this um, intergovernmental body called the Mekong River Commission, which has been going for many years now and had predecessor bodies before that, which is, um, has got a role of um, trying to foster cooperation and sustainable development, sustainable development within the lower Mekong. Um, and they're the client I've been working for. Now, flooding in the Mekong is something that occurs, occurs annually. The graphic at the bottom there shows the, uh, the grey is the, the range in uh, water levels at the Mekong at uh, Phnom Penh, which is where the arrow is on the screen. And, and the x-axis there is about eight months. So you can see uh, and, you know, that the flooding always occurs around the same sort of time of the year, uh, every year, I guess. Um, and then the, the, the um, four blue line, four lines on there show the particular water level at Mekong for four, four consecutive years, um, 2003 to 2006, I think. Um, so flooding is really important. It's a real positive for that catchment, for that watershed. 
And if you look at the MRC, Mekong Rivers Commission website, it says that it's, you know, it's generating over $8 billion a year in terms of benefits, in terms of um, agriculture, you know, um, improving the land for agriculture and for, 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 um, for rice and also in the fisheries. So it's, it's a really important driver of, um, of, of wealth of the people in that area. But it's also, unfortunately, has a, a massive impact as well. As you can see, again, there's figures of, you know, on average, $60 million a year um, impacts, you know, much stronger figures than that. So the number of people are dying every year in the Mekong. So 2000 was a particularly severe flood. You know, there's figures of over 800 people dying, 2001 over 300. And then 2005, which is one of the lines on that graph. So you can see it's not a particularly severe event, but you're still in the order of 100 people dying due to flooding in that basin. As I said, I've worked on a number of projects for the, for the MRC. The, the current one I'm working on is a, a German-funded project which is trying to help embed climate change thinking into flood risk management decision-making in the Lower Mekon. There's a, the, there's a, on the, the title of the project is actually there, and I'm not going to try and say it because it's a very German title. Um, it's about systemising things, and it's, it's quite hard to understand. But it's, uh, that's, you know, the, the aim is to get there and make a difference through cl uh, by embedding climate change thinking in what they're doing. So my involvement involved um, understanding the needs, um, which involved uh, quite a long uh, mission going around the countries and around the different institutions to understand cap current capabilities and understanding what they needed help with, um, looking at tools, best practices, and then coming up with recommending um, improvements to try and um, achieve the objective of the project. I'm not going to go through all of the projects. I'm just going to highlight four principles that we came up with as part of the uh, work on that that I think are um, I believe are interesting in the way they use climate change science. So the four principles are we need to integrate climate change thinking into current decision-making practices as opposed to think of it as something that's um, separate from it. We need to acknowledge, we need to use appropriate and applicable methods which may not be the, the, you know, the, the best science if you like or the, the most cutting-edge science. We need to acknowledge and work with the uncertainty and we, use to, we need to use methods that are you know, about good enough. Uh, I'll explain those a bit more in the next few slides. So this, this first principle is integrating it into the decision-making process and not having it as something that's separate. You know, the reasons why are on the screen there, which are the, all the obvious ones, I think, that you know, where so investments made now are not wasted um, due to future climate change, so now we're not making it harder for future generations, and if we don't integrate it, we're displacing the problem for someone else to deal with. Principle two is about applying appropriate and applicable methods. Now, this means we're not applying necessarily best practice. We're applying practice which is appropriate for the issues and the capabilities and the time and the money that's there in the lower MECOM. We need to produce sound defensible evidence because the way the MRC works, it's all about cooperation between the different stakeholders. Um, so they need to have something they can, they can believe in, some evidence base, which they then have to then deal, uh, then goes into the more political decision-making process. Um, again, it says that you know, it's got to be it's best practice that's relevant for the actual location, the actual decisions that are trying to be made. It's got to be proportional as well in that we, if we've got um, small-scale investments that perhaps have got a very short life, you know, we don't want to have some great overhead of some uh, you know, tons of analysis and calculations to help with that that are not relevant for that particular decision. Whereas if, whereas if we've got some some type of decisions that really have a very long design life, well, you know, it's more important to think about the future and to spend time and money on that analysis. Uh, a key thing is that the methods have got to be transparent, and that's transparent to the people who have got to use that information to try, and make, try to make decisions. Um, 
And again, if you end up with methods that are very complicated, um, very hard to explain, they may not achieve anything because people won't understand them, they won't, they won't use them, and they'll make their decision a different way. Principle three is about acknowledging the uncertainty. We all know that climate change science has got an awful lot of uncertainty. Some of it can be quantified, some of it can't be. We know it's rapidly evolving. We know that you know, we've got to start by basing ourselves on that this uncertainty will always exist in the results. We can't wait until it, it goes away. So we, need, we want to use methods that acknowledge this uncertainty and perhaps are just testing the robustness of sets of decisions to these potential futures um, and prioritise it, prioritising things that will work well under a range of these potential futures. Now, principle four was about good enough methods. Um, so it was so, e so easy to want to use the, you know, the most, that higher resolution data and the most, um, I don't know, cutting edge methods, but they just will not have traction this, in, these, in the climate of these countries because of the, the knowledge, the data, the timescales, the money and all these sort of things. So we've got to try and find methods that are just good enough to try to help identify what are the, the best options. The bullet point there about um, decoupling some of these uh, sequences of calculation processes I feel very strongly about in that my experience working in industry is that you always have to redo the work. We always find new bits of data or something else changes and you've got to redo it. If you've got to redo a lot of uh, climate change analysis, then some hydrology, then some hydraulics, some impact analysis, some options analysis, every time some bit of data changes, you'll never finish the job. So if we can decouple some of these processes, these calculations, and take what I'm calling a scenario a neutral approach to some of the calculations, we won't have to redo things when one bit changes. We can just look up in a lookup curve or whatever it is, a different place in that to, to, to you know, give us the new results. Um, and, yeah, and so simple enough is all about generating results that are sufficiently robust to enable a good decision. So all that sounds good and, and, and the project that I was involved in, um, we should have been at this stage, we should have um, be into getting close to the finish, close to the end of it. We were meant to have been putting through some pilot cases to prove it locally, on, prove a decision-making process or decision support process lo locally on the ground using real data and real locations. We've got nowhere near going, uh, getting that far down. It's because we're bogged down at the moment in a desire to improve the modelling tools, wait for the latest bit of um, higher resolution climate change data. So we're, we're not going forward. And you know, I find that really, really frustrating that we're, people want that accuracy, they want the best data, and they won't move on to the, the process of trying to embed in um, you know, the main aim of the project, which is embedding a process rather than making decisions. Now, why is it that we haven't moved forward on that project? Is it because there isn't the appetite locally for embedding climate change resilience into decision-making processes? Is it, is it because people just don't believe it? Well, they do, they understand it. They, when we went, went round to speak to everybody, it was, you know, they understood the importance of looking, um, you know, that, that things are changing in terms of sea levels and rainfalls, etc. And there, I think there is the appetite to embed it in there. Um, is it because the methods we are, we as in the, the team and we as in a community working this area are proposing are just too complicated for people to understand and to take up? Um, or is it because in the Mekong, the magnitude of the problems they're facing today are so massive that thinking about what would happen in 30, 20, 50 years' time isn't relevant for them? So back to the, you know, the, the topic of the talk is, cl is climate change science a barrier to flood risk decision-making and then thinking about the Mekong. Well, it, currently, it's just not part of their decision-making process. 
Um, the MRC itself is trying to um, grapple with all the issues to try and make it part of the process, um, and that's where we are. Moving on to the second example, which is the Taihu Basin in uh, eastern China. So it's uh, not as big as the Mekong, only 37,000 square kilometres. Um, I can't remember the um, population of the lower Mekong, but it's probably similar to 40, billion, 40 million people. Uh, Taihu includes a number of cities, the biggest being Shanghai, but there's another four or five cities that are you know, very, very big that I can't even remember the names of. So there's, there's tons of people. There's massive development, and it's very low... Uh, low-level ground for most of you. 80% of it is in this three to four metres above sea level. There's been major flooding in the um, basin. Uh, the two examples here, 91 and 99, you can see that the water level that was achieved in the Taihu Lake, which is in the middle of the basin there, was up to 4.79 metres. Um, and that led to you know, widespread impacts, loss of life, damages, etc. Uh, 99 was even higher than that, up to just over five metres. And there's, there's a range of values about what the uh, damages from that event was, you know, one I picked up was it's greater than one billion dollars of damage from that single event. So again, it's somewhere where flooding is really important. The project that I was involved with, again with a, a, a group of UK and Chinese experts, um, was this scenario analysis, transfer of trans, uh, scenario analysis technology um, to the Taihu Basin. It built, built from the UK flood foresight work. The aims of the project were to try to understand how flood risks uh, might change in the Taihu Basin over the next 50 years um, and what the options were for government and other stakeholders to respond to those challenges. We were looking at um, urbanisation, economic development, how the flood defence scheme system in the basin has changed and how it could change and also looking at climate change effects. Again, I'm not going to go through the whole of that project. Uh, there's some very good articles in the Journal of Flood Risk Management uh, I don't know, six months ago, something like that, that uh, covered the whole of the, the project. Um, and uh, I think Jim was the uh, editor of that edition, so he can uh, let, let you know more information about that if you want. So uh, I just want to pull out some particular things I thought interesting and useful from that project. One was that right at the start, there was this real emphasis on not doing any modelling to begin with. Let's try and understand how the what the system's like and how, what the weaknesses, how it responds are, and use expert judgment working with all the local stakeholders and I thought that was brilliant great way to start the project um, so this diagram on the screen at the moment is a conceptual diagram of some of the um, the mechanisms of flooding and the, and the impacts um, of the impact areas for the basin so uh, you can see we've got uh, we've got um, water coming from the river and going to the river the Yangtze at the top uh, transfer uh, to the sea and then um, to Haozhong Bay in the bottom but water falling off the hilly areas on the left-hand side, and then those um, light blue um, squares are, are, are um, a conceptualisation of the drainage network, and there's lots and lots of um, canals, drainage channels in, in there. So I thought um, starting the project by understanding how the system works and getting it written down and trying to share that knowledge was a really good first step. Um, another first good step, I think, was looking at the trying to use... Um, Again, expert-driven uh, workshopping, expert elicitation to try to think through what are the important um, drivers and responses to flooding and to frame that inside a couple of scenarios. So there's a couple of linked scenarios where we took an A2 climate change and A2 socioeconomic 
uh, pairing and we also took a B2 climate change and a, the Chinese national plan as our two paired scenarios and then through workshopping got people to think about what are the important drivers at the moment and, and what they could be under these different future scenarios and, and also think about different responses and think through how they could be you know, the relative ranking of those responses under different scenarios and that was you know the benefits I think of that were it was relatively quick to do we didn't need to run loads and loads of models it was just expert judgment of, of we involved all the stakeholders early on and they felt more part of the project um, it also was really good in it um, steered the work that was done in the subsequent analysis so we'd only look at the the uh, the parts of the system and the, the, the drivers and responses that the experts were telling us are likely to be important or could be report important if it was clear that they wouldn't be important we didn't look at them so that focused what we were doing that was the qualitative analysis we also did a quantified risk assessment where we did a more traditional top-down climate change hydrological models then through some hydraulic models using the ISIS model through to um, uh, impact calculations um, and then looking at how uh, looking at impacts into different future scenarios and today's today's conditions of future different scenarios and then looked at um, some of the um, potential responses um, now there's the approach we took although it was was complicated was also quite simple compared to what you could do in terms of this sort of analysis um, the way we uh, allowed for climate change in the analysis there were some um, series of precious um, simulations that were done but we from those we came up with some change factors we then applied to a, a historic record of rainfall um, and um, scaled that for different um, probabilities to then uh, run through this model sequence to come up with annualized average impacts um, and you, know, you could criticize what we did in terms of the, you know, the, the pureness of the science, if you like, but it did, the important thing was that it enabled us to come up with some high-level messages that are easy to, under, well, I think they're easy to understand. And the best way to see it is from this um, graph here, I think. So on the y-axis of here, we've got the ratio of flood damages from our baseline period to, the, um, to a particular scenario. Um, so the horizontal red line on there is uh, equals to one so uh, you can see the um, baseline 2005 we've got a, a one because that's our, our basic so anything any uh, damage higher than that would give you a, a value higher than one so the first area that circled there shows if we just if we run our simulations our quantified analysis broad scale quantified analysis with just social economic change in just more development on the floodplain then the calculation showed that we were getting about a five-fold increase in the, in the impacts for the particular period we were looking at, 2050. If we did the same thing but turn off change on, the develop, uh, change on the floodplain and only had climate change, we're also getting about a five-fold increase in impacts, the quantified parts of the impacts, that is. And if we turn both of those in our, in our models, we got you know, 15 to 20-fold increase in impacts on the floodplain damages. Now, there's lots of... Um, other, there's lots of um, other impacts that are not included in this, this quite um, stark um, quantified dollar sign calculation but it was really I think it was a really strong message about the need for change the need to adapt to it which was really useful for awareness raising um, which is what the first bullet point says there um, the as I said I've talked about that quantitative analysis which 
you know, helped us identify the significant processes that needed to be included, uh, but also really helped with the teamwork in building, uh, you know, building the team, stakeholder buying and that sort of thing. Um, but the, and as, as I said, it's quite a, quite a simplified, quantified analysis um, in, in against when you compare it with some approaches, but it was also very complex. I, I still find it quite hard to explain it to people working, working for all the steps and all the skills that went into it. And I don't think it's actually going to be, um, if, you, if you try to use that approach for making tactical decisions, I think it probably wouldn't work. It's too complicated, but it is appropriate. I think it's appropriate for um, high level raising of the awareness for, for need to change. Um, and I also quite like the way that we use very simple um, scenarios, coupled scenarios, because we, you know, we kept on reinforcing these aren't, you know, these, these are um, projections, they're not predictions. Um, there's, you know, there's more recent data that you could use, but they give you a feel for what could happen if this came, if this was to occur. Um, the downsides of it, I suppose, are that it was, it was, it took a long time to do that quantified part of the analysis. Um, and we did focus on the things we could quantify. Um, and therefore, you're missing a lot of stuff that's important that, can't, that couldn't be quantified in there. And also, you ended up with a system that was quite hard to work. So, drawing from those um, two examples and also from my other experience in flood risk management work, um, you know, to me, climate change science is both an enabler and a barrier to improve decision making in flood risk management. Um, I mean, the, the enabler bits, are, are, the enabler bits are, are quite obvious. The barrier things, the things that I think are causing it to be a barrier, include the things that are shown on the screen here, that they, they tend to make you focus... Um, well, we know there's lots of uncertainties in these things, so you, you, it's only ever giving you an incomplete picture of the future, but they tend to make you focus on the things that can be quantified and perhaps ignore or, or put on the side the things that you can't quantify in money terms or in some other quantified way. Um, the probabilistic descriptions that we've, we've now got, again, make things um, more, complicate, more complicated. So in the UK, we have the UK CPO9 stuff. And that, we couldn't apply that in practice in industry, um, and it, generally speaking. Um, and so, for example, for the Environment Agency, went through a lot of work turning those into change, uh, regionalised change factors that could then be used, and we do use those, and we, we find those quite a, a, applicable for that sort of use. Um, and also, these probabilistic descriptions can easily give the perception that they include all the uncertainties, and they don't do that, we know that, but it's easy to forget that. The complexity of the amount of data and um, the you know, scenarios, the resolution, the probabilistic description, are tending to encourage us to use much more much complicated, much more complicated in impact analysis and options assessment than perhaps we need to do to tell the difference between different options. Um, yeah, there's always going to be increasing resolution um, of the data, which is giving the perception of increased accuracy and also it enables people to say, well, I've heard about this new Japanese model that will give a work with a 100-metre grid or whatever it is, so let's wait until we get that data before we start using the information to try and make decisions. Also, the um, Taihu Basin, you could see it's a, it's a bit of a mix of a top-up and bottom, uh, top-down and bottom-up approach, but generally it's a, a, a top-down approach where we're starting with climate science, we're pushing changes in the climate, in the weather, in the climate variables through our hydrological models, through our hydraulic models, looking at impacts. 
And I think they were, that type of approach is great for raising awareness that something needs to be done. Um, I'm not sure it's the right way to embed that sort of um, climate change thinking into the decision-making process. Um, it's reliant on these um, climate and impact models. And as I say, I, I don't think it's necessarily the right way for mainstreaming the uh, climate change science into um, or consideration of climate change into actual tactical decision making. Um, so what I now want to talk, finish off by talking about is perhaps a better way of doing it, which builds from the UK SIP decision making framework, which is really good, but is also focused on adaptation planning. Um, builds from some other literature that's out there at the moment, for example, that uh, paper that's uh, the Tyler and however you pronounce Munchen. Um, we start by focusing on the system, and the system just isn't, isn't just the infrastructure, it's the, um, the ecosystem around that, it's the people, it's the institutional things. Start by looking at that, understand that system, understand its weaknesses, the, the weaknesses of the current system under current weather conditions. Then stress the system, and you can stress it either using you know, complicated models or you can stress it using your brain and uh, you know, expert elicitation. S stress it to changes in some of the internal stuff, perhaps deterioration of the assets for a flood defence system, or external things such as governmental change or institutional change or weather ch changes in the weather. Look for thresholds where a certain amount of change in something leads to a step change in the response that's needed. So that could be a certain amount of sea level rise in the, um, in the uh, South China Sea, making a change in the way that um, the, the tidal gates could work to keep the water out. Identify how to build resilience into each component of the system, and the components again being the infrastructure, the ecosystems, people and the institutional. Focus on trying to uh, build resilience for the current, the, the weaknesses in the current system, and have a look, take, a, uh, take an interest in the future scenarios, but don't drive it from that. Think about sequencing responses as de decision pathways, um, where you can come to a certain decision point and look about whether you should take this set of um, future uh, options or this set of options, depending on what the current information is on that, uh, the current sea level rise or, or whatever, whatever the, the things that are making those decisions. Also, considering the lead times, how long you need to think ahead before that, that thing could be implemented. And you know, key to this is having you know, strong stakeholder involvement in the whole of this, sharing knowledge, learning between all members of the team, and, and where we're doing modelling analysis, using that stakeholder group to drive the analysis that's done, and also to critique the answers that come out of it, the numbers that come out of it. Um, so this diagram here is trying to show that process in a in sort of a modified version of the UK SIP um, decision-making framework. So again, we start with understanding what the, the objects of the job is, the, the, the performance objectives of the system, perhaps maybe driving it, uh, what's acceptable, what's not acceptable. Um, we then spend time trying to understand the system as it is today, trying to understand the weaknesses in the system, where there's weaknesses and the resilience of it. Also thinking at this stage about what could happen in the future and climate change is just one element of those future changes. Look at... Um, Look for options for increasing the resilience of the existing system and think about those that will also help with, the, um, you know, with a potential future. Appraise, and sequen uh, appraise options, sequence options into these decision pathways. And in that step four, use whatever is the appropriate method for that particular industry. So in the 
um, in the UK for a lot of the infrastructure stuff. It's about the um, Treasury's Green Brook as the way that's uh, deriving, working that appraisal. So use that. Don't use something else that's special about climate change. Um, think about sequencing different, op different uh, options, packages of options, and think about decision points and how different criteria, different data availability could uh, cause you to make certain decisions. Make the first decision, implement it, monitor, decide, what, uh, look at the decision pathways to decide when you should be making, making your next option. Um, and it's, if, we, if we split it up this way, the um, steps five, six and seven can really be done without, you know, we can get new data coming in, which could be new climate projections or new information on the infrastructure you've got. And perhaps all we need to do is look at our existing plan, which will include these decision pathways and things, and uh, change our route round five, six and seven, and not have to redo all of that um, expensive work in the one, two and three. And again, all the time, um, focus on engagement with the people who are uh, the actors in, in this process, both those who are affected and those that have got some management role. That's it. I'd like to thank the uh, Mekong River Commission and its funders, uh, including GIZ, which was the German agency that was helping us on that work, and the, the people who helped me on that. Um, for the Taihu Basin, it was a, a group of UK and Chinese funders uh, and partners who were working on that. There's uh, two key members from the team in the room at the moment, which is Jim Holden and Edwin Pennyrousel. Uh, thanks for their help on this, uh, particularly to Edward Evans and Professor Cheng, who are shown in the picture there. Uh, who were leading it. Um, the photo there shows um, Professor Cheng being happy and smiling and Edward Evans, who was our leader, looking a bit strange. The reason he's looking like that is that bowl um, you see on the screen there was the, perhaps the, you know, the, the biggest impression on me for the whole of that project was when we had this meal and they brought on a pot of live, sh uh, live shrimps and the shrimps were jumping out of the bowl <laughs> while we were trying to eat them. So that's why he's got that quite strange face on at the moment. Um, and there we go. Thank you. I just want to highlight that, that the, the references that have helped me with my thinking here, particularly, yeah, obviously, the UK SIP stuff and the, the recent report, and then that bottom one, um, that Framework for Urban Climate Resilience, that I think is a really good report. Um, there we go. Questions?